Christ Church, New Malden, Sunday the 12th of June 2022, 9.30 service. Katie Loveman speaking in the series, The Fruit of the Spirit, Faithfulness. Part of the fruit of the Spirit. But what does faithfulness, faithfulness mean in the Bible and in practice for us? Well, it can mean many things, can't it? It can mean uh, a faithful servant, or it can mean being faithful in a marriage, or being faithful to a promise, or even a faithful reproduction of something. When I draft contracts for a book to be published in another language, the contract always includes a clause saying that the translation must be made faithfully and accurately. So we know that the translated book will say the same thing as the author wrote. All of these different uses of the word imply staying true to something, don't they? Whether that's an author's work or to a person. Not deviating from that one commitment or that promise. We can trust the commitment that's made in a relationship or in a contract or, or in a belief when it's faithful. When we know that someone's faithful, we can have faith in what they do, faith in their behaviour. When I receive those translated copies from the foreign publisher, I can have faith that they do actually contain what the author wrote, because the publisher promised to make a faithful translation. And the contract signed between us gives me faith in that promise. The book of Hebrews in the Bible, in verse 1, contains a famous definition of faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we can't see. I can't see the faithfulness of those translated books because I can't speak the language. But I hope for it, and because I have the contract, I'm certain of it. God's given us a hope the hope of his kingdom and our place in it. And we can be sure of that hope. He's made a commitment to us and we can trust that. We can be certain of him even though we can't see him. We can have faith in God because he is faithful. It's just like in a relationship. We have to trust our partner's faithful, faithfulness to us even when we can't see them. Otherwise, we'd never let them out of their, our sight, or we'd be riddled with jealousy the whole time. No, we know our partner, and we know they're committed to us, even if we're married. No, sorry, we know that they're committed to us. If we're married, then they've made a vow as well. So we have faith in them because we know them, and because of that vow. And faith in God is the same. God has made a commitment to us, and because of that promise, that covenant, we can have faith in him. The Bible shows us over and over again the unchanging faithfulness of God. And that gives us faith in his faithfulness to us. So when Galatians chapter 5 talks about faithfulness as being part of the fruit of the Spirit, that's what it means, that the Holy Spirit in us increases our faith in God and our faith in his promises. And as our faith in God grows, so does our faithfulness to him. We become more like Jesus, the original faithful one. 
Just as the translated book is a faithful representation of the original, so we are called to be a faithful representation of Jesus. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit, making us gradually into a more faithful likeness of Jesus, like a faithful translation or the faithful reproduction of a work of art. We become a more faithful image of God. So what does it mean to be faithful? Well, one aspect of faithfulness is obedience. Not slavish obedience, which is forced on someone because there's no choice. It's faithful obedience, which is obedience given willingly as an act of love. And the supreme example of that is Jesus' faithfulness to his Father. He was happy to submit everything to God, even putting his life in God's hands because of the great love that they shared. God wants us to submit our life to him too, in faithful obedience. And when we do, our lives will have much greater significance because our acts of faith actually mean something beyond what we do now. So let's look at how that works from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 gives lots of examples of people who acted out of faith. And if we look at the things that they did, we can see that each one conveyed something way beyond what they knew. So verse 4 of chapter 11 mentions Abel, Adam and Eve's younger son. His animal sacrifice was pleasing to God. And because of that faith, that act of faith, he introduced the concept of a life given in sacrifice to make us right with God. Because of his faithfulness, his act of God, his act of faith, tells us something about God's plan for the world. Verse 5 mentions Enoch, a faithful man who did not experience death but was taken straight up to be with God. Because of his faithfulness, God chose him to give us the idea of eternal life with God, not having to experience death, but having eternal life. In verse 7, there's Noah. Noah builds an ark, not because he could see the floods rising, but because he trusted God's word and God's saving plan. That act of faith demonstrated the idea of God's rescue through a particular family which ultimately became God's big family, which we belong to today, and which we've just baptised two new brothers into. And that family, that idea of God's family, started with Noah, when God rescued that one family to be his, his people. In verse 8, it was Abraham's faith in God that led him to the area that would eventually become the Promised Land the home of God's family, the Jews. By undertaking that journey through faith, Abraham laid the foundations of a physical homeland for the children of Israel and a spiritual home for God's people in his kingdom, our promised land, God's kingdom. So you see how these faithful acts contribute to God's plan and actually advance God's kingdom. Even when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, Abraham acted in faith, putting his son into God's hands. 
but at the last minute, God provided a ram to take his place. Now, I don't know whether Abraham or Isaac ever understood that excruciating act of faith. But we know now that it was God showing us more of his plan, that a sacrifice is required, but that God himself will provide it through his own only son, carrying his cross like Isaac carried those sticks. God revealed more of his plan when Isaac was saved from death by the ram caught in the thorns, just as we're saved by Jesus wearing his crown of thorns. In Hebrews 11, verse 28, we see Moses keeping the first Passover, a sacrificed lamb, and its blood sprinkled on the doorposts. That was what saved each house from the angel of death as he passed over. That act of faith, sprinkling the blood on the doorpost, was another demonstration of how a sacrificial death can bring salvation to them, and one day to us. Straight after that, Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, and eventually they found them freedom in the promised land, the same land that Abraham travelled to hundreds of years before. And we ourselves have our own promised land, which is God's kingdom, in the future, unseen. But following Moses' example, we have faith that it's there and that we're on the way to it. So all of those people are mentioned in Hebrews 11 and a few more besides. And what Hebrews 11 shows us is that when each of these heroes of faith acted out of faith, it made a difference to the working out of God's eternal plan. Their acts of faith played a part in bringing it about. And it's the same for us. When we obey God out of faith in his will and faith in his love, we also convey something beyond the here and now. We give a glimpse of God's kingdom, of what it will be like when the world is filled with faithfulness and everything is in harmony as a result. But more than that, our acts of faith actually make a difference, putting another building brick into the foundations of that kingdom. We're actually building it here. And that's our role as a church too, a church that we have now two new members of. <laughs> the role of the church is to build God's kingdom by acting out of faith in God's love, not out of our own rules and regulations. So in this passage of, in Galatians which we read, which is two chapters before the bit about the fruit of the Spirit, the reading that we had from chapter 3, Paul is telling them off for setting up obstacles to people wanting to join the church. They were trying to exclude certain people. No, faith, he says, is the only requirement. We're not to make other conditions for allowing people to join the church and worship together. In Paul's day, it was circumcision. Some church members were demanding that new Christians get circumcised in line with the old covenant. To join the church, people had to become more like the Jews. But this denied God's new covenant and Jesus' death, which is for everyone. As Galatians 3 verse 8 puts it, all nations will be blessed through you. That's not just the white countries or the countries with democratic governments 
or the nations who we want as allies. No, it means everyone, whether they're nice and salubrious or not. Are we guilty of the same thing? Are we subconsciously saying that people need to be more like us to join our church? Are there people that we're excluding, either deliberately or unintentionally? That's one reason that we had that new entrance built at the front of the church. Before, there was a step there. In fact, I think there were two steps. And that was a real obstacle to some people coming in, whether they were in a baby buggy or a wheelchair or using a walking stick. So getting rid of the steps and having a slope instead is only a small thing, but it's not just practical, it's symbolic as well, that church welcomes everybody. Are there other ways that we're thoughtlessly excluding people? Human beings being what we are, we need to be constantly examining ourselves for that. But it's not just about coming to church. Faithfulness and being a faithful image of Jesus is also about inclusion in society as a whole. There's been a lot of discussion recently about how we can be more inclusive of transgender people. In sports, there's debate over whether it's fair for transgender women to compete against natural-born cis women. And when it comes to toilets and changing rooms, should they be allowed to use the same ones? As Christians, how do we respond? Well, according to Paul, there's no barrier whatsoever for anyone coming to church or to come to God, whether they're transgender or not. So it's wrong and tragic when people put barriers up. I think we'd all agree on that. But our faithfulness to God's plan must go beyond that. that that's just our starting point for our general attitude. How can we exclude people from society who we know that God has accepted. That would not be a faithful thing to do. We'd be showing a lack of faith in God's faithfulness to his people. Because God's love is for all people without exception, our first principle in any situation is the inclusion of all people without exception in all aspects of society. So what follows from that is a responsibility to think compassionately about what would that really look like and to find ways to work it out in practice. And that's something that the world is doing right now. The Olympic Committee and other sports bodies too are wrestling with the question of the right levels of testosterone in the blood for fair competition. But they haven't found a just outcome yet. We should pray that they do. Every so often, rows about the sanctity of the single-sex loo or the changing room emerge. We haven't yet found the right answer. And in the meantime, people at all stages on their transgender journey are left vulnerable and hurt. Can you join the debate on social media? Is there anything you can do at your workplace or with your neighbours? As Christians, we can inject an attitude of love and acceptance into the discussion. And from that starting point, we can influence the tone of the debate. We can subtly change people's attitudes and join in the work to find practical ways to make inclusion a reality for those who feel most excluded.
Galatians tells us that inclusiveness takes faith. Faith in that other person and faith in God's love for them, each and every one, and their loved and cherished status before God, whether they're trans, gay, married, or whatever. Jesus says, come as you are. No need to be something that you're not. And our duty as Christians is to work out how we need to change in order to make them welcome in all parts of society as well. I've used trans people as an example because there's a lot of harsh debate about their rights at the moment. But of course the same principles apply to anyone in danger of being marginalised by society, but saddest of all, by the church. Paul links faith with inclusiveness and it breaks his heart when he sees people who claim to be faithful shutting people out. We have a responsibility to live out our faith in the same way as Paul is asking the Galatians. And when we do that, we make a bit more of God's kingdom become a reality. People sometimes wonder why God is taking such a long time to come back and establish his kingdom here on earth. But when we realise our part in bringing it about, it's easier to understand. The less faithful we are in building his kingdom here, the longer it's going to take to come. So let's allow the Holy Spirit to do his work and bring out his faith in our life. An apple tree needs pruning if it's going to bear its best fruit. And in the same way, we need to prune off our old habits and cultivate new habits. Habits that faithfully demonstrate God's inclusive love. Paul calls it keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. And that way, we can give a faithful representation of Jesus and build a bit more of his kingdom with our own lives, his inclusive kingdom. And then with the help of the Holy Spirit and his fruit, we'll be a hero of faith as well. <laughs>